Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. We're not interested in pilots uh, just for experimentation. We're interested in proving that they work and that then we can scale them. That is exactly what happens. Uh, for us with offshore wind. I first met Dominion Energy CEO Bob Lew at a shipping terminal in Norfolk, Virginia. We stood two years ago at the site that would one day support Dominion's build-out of the first commercial-scale offshore wind project in the U.S. Since then, Siemens Gamesa, the turbine manufacturer plagued by a billion-dollar quality control flop, has pulled out of that project. And Dominion's coastal Virginia offshore wind farm is one of only a few to so far survive the rough seas facing the nascent industry. Offshore wind's future, while at times feeling bleak, got me thinking about the evolving role of investor-owned utilities in the energy transition. To be sure, utilities aren't seen as bastions of innovation and are often criticized for slow walking the fight against climate change. But maybe no other entity is equipped to shoulder the risk of incubating the raft of emerging technologies we desperately need for decarbonization. I'm John Ingle, Editor-in-Chief of Renewable Energy World. And this week on Factor This, Bob Blue breaks down Dominion's own ambitious carbon reduction plan, offshore winds, turbulent waters, and why the utility is leaning in on long-duration battery tech. That's all next on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Bob Blue, thanks so much for joining the Fact of This podcast. It's great to see you. Great to see you, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited for this one. You are the second uh, utility CEO that we've had on the show, and that follows uh, Entergy Louisiana CEO Philip May. And that that episode was so well received that I do want to continue to bring in the utility executive perspective to this audience, which is primarily made up of uh, developers, asset owners, EPCs. And I know that can sometimes be unfriendly ground for the utility executive. But I was told that that the perspective from the utility was so valuable to hear the thinking and the strategy and how we can work together as an industry. So uh, I'll, I'll let that be our foundation for a, for a positive conversation here. Um, I think that makes perfect sense. Appreciate great. the opportunity. Yeah. So you may not remember this, but the, the first time we met was a couple of years ago now at the, the Port of Virginia, where you yeah. joined then Governor Northam, Energy Secretary Granholm for the unveiling of a planned offshore wind manufacturing hub to, to, to support project development along the eastern seaboard, including the coastal Virginia offshore wind farm. It feels like so much has changed since we talked two years ago. The Inflation Reduction Act didn't exist, for one. And the optimism that surrounded offshore wind at the time, I feel like, is a bit more muted today. Let's let's start there with offshore wind, because I think that that puts Dominion in a really unique place. And a reason for having this conversation is my my interest and fascination with the investor owned utility role in the energy transition and incubating these really, really hard things high level. How do you feel about the state of affairs in offshore wind, even though? What Dominion's doing is in a better spot than others. We've seen some struggles. 
Right. Yeah, John, one thing that hasn't changed uh, since you and I met uh, that event in uh, May of the uh, year before last is our project uh, moving forward uh, very much on time and on budget. It was uh, on time and on budget then uh, uh, at the very beginning, and it remains uh, the case uh, since then. So I feel really good uh, about our project. Um, if you tort- sort of take a step back for a moment and think a little bit about uh, our offshore wind project, a few factors have been really valuable for us. One is timing. Um, we started uh, really in the offshore wind business in 2013 uh, when we obtained the lease uh, for the area that we're now developing. Um, we built two, the first two turbines in federal waters off the coast of the U.S., those began operating in October of 2020, so right in the pandemic, uh, and they have continued to operate extremely well. They're Siemens Gamesa turbines, um, and uh, they've operated extremely well for three years. Um, that that uh, timing really helped us learn a lot about the supply chain in offshore wind, which is something that a United States utility is not likely to know a lot about on its own, but we learned a heck of a lot. Uh, in that process that has been valuable to us. And then we timed our filing with the State Corporation Commission uh, in the fall of 2021 at a point at which uh, commodity prices were up. Um, And so when we went to our regulators and said, this is what our project is going to cost, um, we had baked in um, some expenses that maybe other projects did not when they bid on PPA prices prior to the fall of 2021. Um, so the timing has been uh, really valuable. The regulatory process, we're different than any other United States offshore wind project, and it is a regulated project. It's not a PPA project. And I know Uh, People have different views on uh, whether projects are better done uh, in a regulated construct or uh, through a PPA. We feel very strongly about the value of the regulated construct. We can talk more about that uh, as we go forward. But for this project in particular, the benefit of that uh, regulated construct was um, that we went to our uh, regulators with firm contracts uh, and we had locked in our position in the supply chain. And that's incredibly important, we're finding, because there is extraordinary demand for offshore wind, not just in the United States, in Europe, in Asia, a relatively small supply chain. And so those companies that are the suppliers to us um, are seeing a lot of demand. We locked in our slots. Uh, that's proving very valuable. You know, uh, I saw you at the event with Governor Northam. We just did an event a few weeks ago with now Governor Yunkin uh, celebrating the arrival of our first eight foundations or monopiles for our project. Uh, incredible support. Um, but the fact that we got those first eight monopiles on time and that the second eight are on their way uh, over from Europe right now, uh, also very valuable. So um, the the timing, the regulatory model, and then finally, the very broad and deep support for this project in Virginia. The event that you came to with the Secretary of Energy and the governor, 
Um, we just had the, the event that I mentioned with Governor Youngkin, new governor, the lieutenant governor was there, the attorney general was there, representatives from the Department of the Interior uh, were there, local officials, state officials, bipartisan support, environmental groups, labor unions, all there in support of this project. So that kind of political uh, and stakeholder support is incredibly important to the success of this project. So I would identify um, timing, regulatory model, and stakeholder support uh, as really helping our project progress. So that sense of optimism we had uh, at the event where you and I met remains today. Um, as to the uh, industry more broadly, you know, I'm, I'm focused on one project in particular, so I am not an expert uh, on the industry more broadly. But if you think about some of the factors that are affecting uh, the U.S. projects, I don't believe they're ones that are going to be here forever. Um, inflation is affecting the entire economy and obviously affecting the supply chain for offshore wind. The ramp up of the offshore wind supply chain that I described, that will eventually, I believe, uh, work itself out. Um, and I believe there will continue to be uh, stakeholder and political support for offshore wind, because if you think about the states on the East Coast that are interested in these projects, uh, they have uh demand for electricity and they have goals for clean electricity. And at the scale we're talking about, offshore wind makes enormous sense. So uh, certainly some challenges, but I think the long-term prospects are still quite good uh, for the offshore wind industry and the short-term projects for prospects for our project are still quite good and we feel really good about it. Hey, Factor This listeners, it's John Ingle. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of the Factor This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. You touched on a couple of things that I want to dig into there that I think are really interesting. Um, one on on supply chain. So I think it was only in the last few weeks, Siemens Gamesa, I think, pulled out of that project that we um, visited two years ago in large part due to the, the broader um, company-wide issues they have with reliability and, and turbine quality. Ha- has that impacted you guys at all? I know you mentioned the two in the water now are, are SG. So just curious off the bat if, if you've evaluated that. Hasn't, hasn't affected us at all. So a couple things to note. First, very disappointing that they're not going to be able to build that blade uh, finishing factory uh, that they had planned on. Uh, does not change our project. Um, we had the ability to use that facility or um, not use that facility. So our blades will now be manufactured in a mature facility in Europe. Um, there are advantages to that from the project uh, um, point of view. Anytime you're uh, manufacturing in a mature facility that has done this before, that uh, can be an advantage. So for our project purposes, uh, this does not change anything. It is disappointing that those jobs won't be uh, coming to Virginia. I I will say there's plenty of other uh, supply chain and job opportunities associated with our project that we're seeing popping up. Um, You know, 500 people involved already. um, As we expect, once the project is done and online, it will support a thousand direct and indirect jobs. 
So it, it and, and you see that in Hampton Roads with the support for this project and understanding of the economic benefit. So uh, that is uh, a very unfortunate, uh, but does not affect uh, the project. It's also important to note with respect to Siemens Gamesa, and obviously we're in very close communication with them regularly at all levels of our two companies. The technical issues that they have experienced have been with their onshore turbines. Yeah. They have not experienced issues with their offshore turbines. We have not experienced any issues with the offshore turbines that we have from them. Um, and, the you know, on the manufacturing of our turbines, they have not started yet. They're not scheduled to start for a while. Uh, but we've been over in the factory. We've looked at their QAQC. Um, we've looked at the schedule for the project in front of us, uh, which uh, is uh, going very well. So we feel very confident in their ability to deliver a high quality uh, product to us uh, on time. And um, we continue to work with them to make sure that that happens. We're seeing that with uh, the entire supply chain, whether it's the offshore substations or the monopiles that I already described or the cables. Um, all of those components are being manufactured on time, on budget, um, and we expect that to continue. So. Uh, bottom line is uh, unfortunate news for Hampton Roads, but not for our project. It does speak to the broader uh, supply chain challenges, though, that do face a nascent industry. And yes. to your point, in getting started on this project a decade ago, the domestic supply chain for offshore wind didn't exist. It still really doesn't. And, and we need those foundational building blocks to be in place to serve not only coastal Virginia offshore wind, but the other projects are, that are going to litter the the eastern seaboard. And what was so exciting about your announcement was not just the progress on your own project, but Orsted and Siemens Gamesa investing in this community, investing in this project, laying that foundation. And so uh, hopefully this is only a, a bump in the road and, and someone else can fill that void. But those elements still need to be worked out and we need to figure out how we're going to service this industry. One One point being, too, that and maybe this will get into the regulatory versus PPA um, uh, choice and, and avenue, but Dominion having to uh, build its own purpose-built offshore wind, I think a jack vessel, if, if that's yes. what it's called, yes. that's a half billion dollar expense to be able to serve this project because we didn't have any, <laughs> you know? So right. I, I, I would love some, some color around that too. And, and maybe, again, that sends us into that next section. Sure. I, you know, that's uh, a, a very good point. This, some people in the United States think of offshore wind as a new industry. It's not a new industry. Uh, the companies that we're working with have done this um, uh, in Europe and uh, to some extent in Asia uh, or have projects that they're working on. You know, as, uh, as the CEO of one of our counterparties told me, you know, we haven't done projects on your side of the Atlantic, but we have on our side. And what we know is water is wet. Um, they, they know how to work in the ocean. Um, but as the, uh, as the industry matures, we will need more uh, U.S.-based supply chain. Um, as I described, I still think the, the longer-term prospects, I don't want to say long-term because I don't, I don't think it's long-term. I think longer, it's, it's not going to happen quite as fast maybe uh, as we might have thought a couple of years ago. But the longer-term prospects for offshore wind uh, remain good because it's important um, for reliability 
uh, and for increasingly clean energy uh, up and down the East Coast. And so I think the supply chain will develop um, uh, at, in order to, to meet that need. And we're going to be training people to, to work on uh, maintaining this project. Initially, uh, Siemens Gamesa has a, a long-term services agreement with us, but our folks will be working in parallel. And then eventually uh, we will be uh, maintaining and, and uh, as well as operating um, this wind farm. And I think you, you're going to see more of that uh, as these projects move forward. So this doesn't uh, dim uh, my optimism. Uh, as to the as to Charybdis, uh, which is the name of the um, wind turbine installation vessel that uh, we're having constructed in Brownsville, Texas. You know, there's some unique aspects of United States law. The Jones Act is um, what is uh, driving um, that construction. Bringing in uh, a vessel from Europe doesn't work uh, for wind turbine installation uh, with the Jones Act. And as the sizes of the turbines get bigger, uh, we're, we're going to need bigger uh, installation vessels in order to handle that. So that's why we decided, you know what, we need to uh, get somebody to build us a Jones Act compliant uh, vessel. There are uh, methods uh, that uh, can be used, feeder barges uh, that allow uh, compliance with the Jones Act. It requires a little more uh, complexity in uh, execution. Um, whereas uh, having a Jones Act compliant vessel means you pick up the uh, turbines and the transition pieces uh, from the port in Hampton Roads and you take them straight out and install them. So uh, there are real advantages to having uh, a vessel like that. The regulatory model that we had gave us the confidence uh, that we were going to be able to move forward with this project. Um, and it was important to us to make sure uh, that we could maintain schedule certainty. Um, one thing that we've learned as we've learned more about the offshore wind um, construction uh, process is that given the serial nature of what you're doing, you need to stay on time. Um, it's true of any large project, but maybe particularly true here. You don't want to have your vessel ready uh, and be paying for it when you don't have the components and vice versa. You don't want the components sitting there. Uh, without a vessel. So we thought it made sense to uh, undertake it. Uh, the, it has been a little bit delayed, um, but it is very much on track. Uh, the, um, at our most recent uh, quarterly earnings call, we discussed the fact that the first leg uh, had been installed. It's, a, it's called a jack-up rig because it, it, uh, it uh, puts legs down on the ocean floor and stabilizes when it's installing turbines. The second leg is now in. Um, and work is continuing on uh, the other legs and the hull weld out. Um, but they are making very good progress uh, on Charybdis. It will uh, work very well for our project. We're looking forward to being able to use it. Let's uh, unpack a little bit more of the regulatory, re regulated business versus unregulated business and the choice to take the path that you did in going through the regulated um, construct. You talked about the challenges with PPAs. We've Seen a few um, canceled in the last couple of months. Avangrids with Connecticut and Massachusetts utilities, Orsteds in New Jersey was pretty high profile in the last few weeks. Uh, why did you make that decision? Because m going that route does not make it easier. It's different. But right. you got, you know, you as an entity, as Dominion, got 
plenty of flack from name your source for the $10.6 billion price tag or the adjustment to the costs when, you know, inflation and supply chain issues started to set in. Um, take us through that thinking and, and how it's gone. And maybe, maybe there's a lesson in there somewhere for, for other utilities that might be going this route. First of all, remember it's a $9.8 billion project. So not 10.6. I remember, I remember, I remember writing 10.6. I don't remember that when that was. And well, maybe it was inaccurate. Maybe I need to go back and find that, but it's been well, years, Bob, since I wrote that. Enough. So give, give me a break. But, but uh, what's a, what's but, a billion dollars between friends? <laughs> don't say, don't our, answer with that. Our, don't. With our regulators and, uh, and, and, uh, uh stakeholders, a billion dollars is very meaningful as it is. Your to PR our team company, just started so. to sweat. Exactly. down their face when they heard so, me say uh, So it, it wasn't a choice by the company. It was a choice by the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, you know, the markets are different in different states. The states north of Virginia along the coast made the decision some years ago to deregulate generation supply, um, not just for offshore wind, but for anything. Um and uh, Virginia had started down that path, as many states had, and in 2007 made the decision, the Virginia legislature made the decision, no, we're going to stay uh, with the vertically integrated uh, utility model that is more common from Virginia south. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so there's sort of different states have different models. So Virginia's model is uh, regulated uh, generation. There, there's some exceptions to that, but uh, for a project of this size, the Virginia law uh, was pretty clear um, that uh, this was to be a regulated project. And that's the role of a regulated utility. We implement policy that is driven by our regulators. And in this case, our regulators said uh, we want to do a uh, utility-owned regulated project. And you're right, there's always debate about this. Um, so far, I think the returns would suggest that this has been the right uh, approach um, for all the reasons that you mentioned already and for ones that I discussed about why our project we believe is going uh, as well as it has. Um, and it's our job as a regulated utility carrying out the policy of the state to go to our regulators and say, this is what the project looks like. This is what it's going to cost. This is why we uh, believe it's going to cost. You take a look um, and do a thorough evaluation and decide whether uh, this is a project that should go forward. This one was a little unique. It had some um, statutory provisions that are a little different than other ones because the, the state had decided um, to get into offshore wind in a big way. Um, and so we're carrying out that policy. We're proud to do it. We think we're doing it well. We think we have a track record of building large projects um, well uh, for the benefit of our customers. And we're quite confident that's what's going to happen here. Let's round out the offshore wind conversation because I, I knew that would cannibalize at least the first half. So I think we're, we're at a good point here. But um, you've been leading a strategic review of Dominion's entire business that's expected to conclude by the end of, I think, the year or early next year, even including, exactly. you know, a, a, a reconfiguring of your own compensation package. So, it's, I mean, it's every piece of, of the business. Um, yes. 
That resulted in the sale of three gas distribution companies as well. And in September, in that earnings call that I think you're, you alluded to previously, you did signal that Dominion could look for a financial partner in the offshore wind project. What does that mean? What could it mean? And, and why would you go that route? Well, um, when we announced this top-to-bottom business review of our company, uh, we set out important goals and objectives, one of which was to make sure that we uh, shored up our credit profile and strengthened our credit metrics. And one of the reasons for that is uh, we've got a lot in front of us uh, to invest in, in uh, particularly in Virginia, but also in South Carolina, where we operate, um, for reliability, uh, which is the first part of our core mission, reliable, affordable, increasingly clean. So investments for reliability and also investments for increasingly clean. Those kind of investments uh, can be hard on the balance sheet of a company any time you're putting out uh, large capital. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we uh, ended this uh, top to bottom business review in a place where um, we had shored up uh, our credit profile. One of the ways that we may be able to do that is with uh, a, an equity partner uh, in offshore wind. As we've described, it's a $9.8 billion uh, capital outlay. And so having a financing partner who can help with that, and then we'll also uh, get the benefits uh, of the cash flows from the project once it is uh, operating uh, is a potentially appealing to us. And uh, as we said on that earnings call, we're in um, advanced uh, stages of uh, discussions with a number of uh, credible uh, counterparties uh, who may want to invest in our project. If there is a way to do that, that makes sense for our shareholders, the owners of our company, and for our customers. Ultimately, this will require approval from our regulator here in Virginia, the State Corporation Commission. Uh, that's something that we think we ought to take very seriously. So we're looking at it, um, and uh, uh, we think it uh, may well have merit um, and does not affect any of the things we've been talking about in terms of the ability to get the project done. Um, that That uh, is just a real focus of sort of our uh, overall um, credit profile, balance sheet and, um, issues that we're trying to address. So I think offshore wind is a, a good way for us to segue into other technologies as well, because as I mentioned in the setup for this episode and in your introduction, I think the vertically integrated investor-owned utility, while not everyone's favorite, does have a unique I, ability. I, I, I'm not. I think everyone it, it, loves. I think everyone it, loves. Oh, oh, Bob, you'll get some emails it just from rolls this. Off yeah. the time. Vertically integrated <laughs> investor-owned utility. Yeah, and, and and say what you want, and people will will have their criticisms of of every entity, but especially in this dynamic that we find ourselves in, with you know developers on one side of the fence and utilities on the other, there are certainly issues that we need to work out. But the investor-owned vertically integrated utility has a unique ability to take on these really hard challenges. And for, for all the, the issues that you may identify, there are a few others that can take on a $9.8 billion project. 
Uh, you like that? Yeah. Um, and, and we're starting to see it in, in storage too. So long duration energy storage, another technology that in a, in a deeply decarbonized world, we know we need a lot of to bridge the gap. If we want to get rid of gas, the market doesn't exist today. And, um, to find partners and customers for that technology is incredibly difficult, but we are seeing some vertically integrated utilities like Dominion partner with the likes of Form Energy or Intervenue on these new projects, albeit pilots, and and you know people will will note that they are small and, and pilot projects. But it's helping a, a small industry that we need get off the ground. What do you think just about that premise? And then we can dive into those relationships specifically. But what what do you see as the key role of the the utility, the IOU? in this energy transition that you know is coming is happening. I totally agree with the premise that utilities can be uh, great mechanisms for scaling up uh, innovation. And we've done that uh, throughout our history uh, at Dominion Energy, whether it's the first 500 kV transmission uh, backbone, um, which we built back in the 60s, or uh, on the storage front, uh, the largest pump storage facility in the country, um, which we operate today uh, f- with great value to our customers um, in Bath County, uh, Virginia. Um, the ability to to go from uh, not generating at all to generating you know 3,500 megawatts in a matter of minutes. Um, those are examples, and there are others, uh, of innovations that our company has helped scale. And so I expect uh, the same will continue. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we are instruments. We carry out um, state policies or federal policies. And so we've got uh, that role. And then we also have the role of uh, responding to what our customers are looking for. And, you know, at Dominion Energy, we have a number of uh, large data center customers. They are very innovative companies. Um, They are interested in clean energy. And so they're also looking for ways to scale up um, and help the energy transition in a way because they, 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 in addition to being innovative companies, uh, they're large customers and they don't want to pay too much. So they want to make sure... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's affordable and they want to make sure it's reliable uh, because particularly if you're a data center, you can't afford any downtime. So uh, we we have sort of the response to our cut co- and then and our residential customers are, are interested again in making sure that we're giving them reliable, affordable, and they're interested in increasingly clean energy, too. So we get that from policymakers, from customers, large and small. And so what we find is an approach that works well is a pilot uh, that we can potentially scale up once we've proven out the concept. Offshore wind is a great example of that. We've got those two turbines operating uh, offshore uh, in Virginia. That's a model that worked well for us. So we're pursuing that same kind of approach with long duration storage. We do have a project we've announced with FORM um, for a battery that could uh, last for potentially 100 hours. Lithium-ion batteries are great, and their costs have come down, um, and uh, we're using them and will ramp up more use of them. They're about four hours. Our pump storage at Bath County, uh, large scale, that's about eight hours. Um, it's dark 
at night for longer than four hours. Uh, and it's uh, there are times when the wind's not blowing as much as you want. So being able to take advantage of storage uh, for an extended period of time could be a real game changer. We need to make sure that uh, this works with our system uh, and we need to make sure that it works for sort of all the stakeholders who are involved. I mean, fundamentally for us, as we think about the energy transition, uh, we need to make sure that we uh, are moving through it uh, in a way that is reliable uh, because the, these sources of generating electricity are different. They put different stresses on the grid, a grid that was built um, with the in, uh, idea of central power plants, uh, dispatchable central power plants, transmitting and distributing electricity out. That's the way the machine has been built. Uh, and now we're trying to use the machine in a different way. And we need to make sure that we can do that uh, reliably. We need to make sure that we can do it affordably. Um, and we need to be able to do it fast enough. Uh, and that raises some issues of permitting that uh, perhaps we can talk about if you're interested. Uh, all of those things are factors at play. Um, but we think we can be an instrument uh, to scale up uh, some of these technologies uh, in a smart way. Uh, taking advantage of our knowledge of the grid and our history of smart innovation and continue to do that going forward. And for those interested, Form Energy co-founder Matteo Jaramillo was a previous guest on this podcast. So you can check out more about their technology and and how they're working to to support utilities like Dominion and others. They have a number of contracts now, Dominion, Southern, um, they've got one with a, a Minnesota co-op that, that escapes. I think Excel actually. Excel, the they've got Excel as well. Owned, I mean, uh, and uh, you start uh, to look at that deck, and you start to see, okay, so maybe there is some support for this. And the next question then is: is you don't want good technology to just get into pilot hell? You know, we know there are a lot of good. <laughs> so I, I don't know if there's a better phrase for that, but there there are a lot of innovative solutions out there that that we do know work. Um, but it's but it's challenging to achieve all of those thresholds that you have to with reliability and safety and, um, you know, decarbonization and so on. Um, but I, I talk to a lot of smart people a lot of, you know, all the time. And the way it's been framed to me is we need to not only incubate the technology, but go from pilot to scale. We need right. to help get to the next stage after that if it does work. How do you view that and and say, you know, two, three years, five years, whatever it takes to to flesh out this technology on your own system? What comes next? Scale. I mean, we're not interested in pilots uh, just for experimentation. We're interested in proving that they work and that then we can scale them. Um, I, I, I know we're offshore winds kind of dominating the conversation, but that is exactly what happened uh, for us with offshore wind. When, when we bought the lease in 2013, um, it was with an idea that this would work, but not with um, total knowledge. And building those two pilot turbines gave us the confidence to say, okay, now we're going to add 176 more larger turbines uh, in the same area. And there, there are examples of that across the industry within our company um, where we try a technology or a new way of doing things, uh, and then we scale it up. Um, I know that there are those who think we don't move fast enough. I, I get that. Um, 
And I would say to those folks um, that we can't afford major uh, issues that cause uh, reliability challenges. That is just not acceptable. Um, it's life threatening when we can't provide reliable electricity to our customers. And so we're going to make sure before we deploy something at scale that it is going uh, to work effectively. Um, I was talking to our uh, innovation uh, award winners at our company. We, we have an award uh, that we give uh, every year to teams that compete for innovative ideas. And when I was talking to them a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, you, you hear the phrase sort of in the tech world sometimes, or at least you used to move fast and break things. Like we can't afford to do that at our company, the break things part. The our fail customers, faster. <laughs> it's too important to our customers uh, to make sure that we're reliable. So that is a balance that we have to strike. I think we do it very effectively. I understand there are others who think uh, that, you know, we're a little bit too slow, um, but we want to make sure that what we're doing uh, works with the system. And I do think that over time uh, with technological advances that we are happy to try to uh, implement, that some things that in the in our world have been more blunt instruments can start to become more refined. You know, just within the last decade, we've gotten much more visibility into the grid than we used to have. You know, it, it wasn't that long ago, and it's still true for some of our customers that the way we find out they don't have power is they call us uh, or now use an app on the web. Um, we now have uh, AMI metering infrastructure deployed, um, and it seems like, well, how hard could that have been? Well, it's it can be pretty technically challenging to get all that done. But now having that kind of visibility, and there are other examples of that um, across the system, to have more visibility into this very complicated machine that we're operating should give us the ability to refine um, and do some things that are not as blunt instruments to increase the capacity uh, of the grid and allow us uh, to operate in ways that we have not operated before because we know what we can see what's going on uh, out there. But we're going to test uh, and study carefully before we deploy at scale. But that's ultimately our goal. So uh, if if things like uh, long duration storage and our project with form, if that works financially and uh, from a reliability point of view, then we would absolutely expect to deploy uh, on a on a broader scale going forward. I think that model uh, works um, and we just need to be able to 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 uh, sort of work our way through external factors quickly enough uh, to allow us to deploy. We've mostly talked about generation so far, but this may be the opportunity to include some T&D issues as well. But what do you see as those opportunities on the grid side, um, be it DERMs and how you're managing distributed energy resources in the field, or you mentioned smart meters, and we're now in this process of AMI 2.0 in some areas and yes. getting even smarter at the edge instead exactly. of just getting that signal that the power is out, knowing why the power is out, and what's happening even right. maybe behind the meter. Um, someday. How do you view all of that? And, and what kind of are your your trickiest 
challenges to sort out on the grid orchestration side, which is harder than just produce electron and send yep. it down the line. Yeah. So I'm not an engineer. I'm a lawyer. So I have to be careful where I I'm trend, neither. But, <laughs> but when uh, when I first uh, moved out of the of the services company, the the law side of our business into operations, uh, one of our very smart uh, transmission leaders said to me, you know, you need to understand that the way the grid is configured today rotating mass is critical. And so operating a solely inverter based grid um, is not possible the way it's designed right now. So figuring out how to address those kinds of technical issues uh, with ramp speed, um, with uh, voltage issues that occur. Again, it, it is hard for People who are not involved, I think, to understand the scale of what we're talking about here. The you know, we operate a little piece of the grid. Um, it's a big undertaking for us, but as compared to the entire grid in North America, it's relatively small. And yet, for us, that scale is huge. Um, and and so, thinking about how all these pieces interact, a technology may work well. Uh, from one point of view, but it may cause issues on another. And so uh, working with uh, outside parties um, and with our own very capable people, we just need to figure out uh, how to integrate a lot of very useful technologies on the grid side that will help us uh, maintain voltage, that will allow us to ensure power quality, even as we're generating differently uh, and as customers are using uh, energy differently. Uh, and then the final piece that I think we need to keep in mind is, uh, is making sure that we're very close to our customers. Um, we don't just need to adopt an approach and say, this is what we're doing, use it. Um, we need to be customer driven. Let's not waste a lot of time on advances. What we think of our advances that are that our customers are not going to find uh, ultimately terribly useful. So there's a lot of pieces that go into it from an engineering and a human behavior uh, point of view that we need to try to put together. But ultimately, uh, to be able to squeeze more capacity out of the existing grid, um, if I might use a sort of a lawyerly way of describing something that's very complicated from a uh, technical point of view. But squeezing more capacity out of the existing grid is going to be uh, incredibly important as we see uh, additional electrification uh, and load growth and knowing that we're not just going to be able to double the size in terms of the number of wires uh, uh, that are out there. We're going to have to do that. Um, but but we're not going to be able to we're going to, we're going to have to add capacity, but we're not going to be able to just double the size of the grid in the next few years. Um, and so uh, we, we need to take advantage of smart technology to do that. You've mentioned customer. This is just a quick aside, but you've talked about your customers, you know, driving your decision making in, in many ways. And, you know, Virginia is home to the to data center capital of, of North America. And you, you have obligations to serve those loads of which the Microsofts and Googles of the world want 
um, 24-7 clean energy wherever they can get it. They want to try out SMRs. Microsoft is investing a lot in nuclear technology. Google just you know uh, powered up their their enhanced geothermal plant in in Nevada yesterday. Um, so I, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's an interesting piece of this, and the the value of that uh, demand from customers should not be overlooked. Uh, in that conversation I had with the Entergy Louisiana CEO Philip May, um, I had brought him on the podcast because they were procuring two thousand megawatts of solar, and in Louisiana that's a big deal, and that's a that makes you double take a little bit and say what's right. going on in Louisiana. The corporates wanted it, the right. industrials wanted it. That's why it was happening. Decarbonization goals exist in energy, energy, and they are trying to get there by 2050. But that wasn't the reason this was happening. How crucial is that demand from the industrials, from your your clients, customers in the decision making process? As you say, okay, we will go try out a form, or we will bring more lithium ion onto the system. We will procure more solar. How do you go about that? It's incredibly important. We listen to our customers, as any successful business does. Uh, and when we talk to the Amazons of the world and the Googles of the world, um, it's important for us to say, what what are your objectives? How can we help you meet them? Uh, and how can we take advantage of your talents um, and sometimes your balance sheet uh, to achieve those goals? Um, it's a challenging dynamic uh, because, as I mentioned, uh, those customers aren't looking to pay exorbitant prices for electricity. No one is. They're not looking to pay exorbitant prices for anything that they get from a supplier. Um, but they are looking. They do all have uh, clean energy goals. And we've uh, had strong partnerships with Amazon on solar projects uh, over the years. Um, and so we find that we can learn a lot from those customers um, and makes us a better company. And so I think that's going to continue to happen. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we're instruments of policy in a sense. Uh, we are also, just like any other business, going to respond to the needs of our customers. And we don't see any evidence of their goals getting less aggressive. Their goals are getting uh, more aggressive mm -hmm. in terms of um, uh, clean energy. Uh, we want to try to help uh, meet those goals. And uh, we think that they can be the source of some pretty good ideas for that. Let's round out with some some of the challenges that you face and how you're addressing them. You know, we talk on this show a lot about interconnection and permitting issues being, you know, two of the, the biggest drags on the energy transition. And we see those through the perspectives of developers and asset owners, but it utilities also don't like bad interconnection policy <laughs> we, and we interconnection, interconnection queue backlogs are not good for utilities either. You have load serving responsibilities and want to meet forecasts and, and deploy where you need to. Um, how, how do you view the state of affairs there? I mean, maybe starting off with interconnection, um, you know, the, the big pause and restart being PJM, but, um, for quarter 2023 was significant uh, by most accounts and and should institute at least some uniformity across the country. But where where are we at with interconnection in, in your opinion? Yeah, well, so we supported PJM's interconnection reforms. Uh, the cluster based uh, first ready approach, we think, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, we're happy to work with PJM on that. Um, 
uh, order uh, 2023, uh, we think may have gone a little too far uh, mm. with uh, penalties and the elimination of uh, reasonable efforts standards. Um, we think that PJMQ reform uh, approach can address a lot of what uh, 2023 was after. But ultimately, as you point out, we're in the same boat as everyone else. It, it doesn't help anybody in the industry uh, if the queue is not working. So we need to partner um, with others to try to, uh, to get to the right point uh, there um, because we need the capacity. You know, it, it's really important uh, ultimately for us to be able to serve our customers. So I'm optimistic uh, that we'll get to the right place. I think uh, we're uh, headed in the right direction with PJMQ reform. As I said, uh, maybe some issues we would take with uh, with order 2023. And how about transmission just in general? Um, you know, we, we know that projects can take a decade plus just to, to make it through the regulatory process. There seems to be interest in Congress for some federal reforms on permitting for transmission and, and other large interstate projects like that. And FERC, I believe, is in the midst of a, a regional transmission proceeding now. Where do we need to go on that front? Um, because we know we need more capacity. We, you know, will we be able to three X the grid in, in 20 years? Maybe not, but we, we need as much as we can get. Uh, so, so where's the next stop? Yeah. So a lot of our transmission projects, most of our transmission projects that we work on are not interstate. They are within, um, our footprint here in Virginia. And we've been able to, to do very well with, uh, working with our state regulators. Um, and, you know, the most recent PJM open window, we had a number of projects advanced to try uh, to address uh, some of the constraints that uh, we've seen, um, particularly in eastern Loudoun County uh, around uh, where many of the data centers want to locate. Um, so the state process, we think, uh, works very well. Um, broadly, uh, permitting reform and specifically uh, related to transmission, we think makes a lot of sense. You know, we have a project that is actually in service in Virginia um, that has been in service for five or more years now uh, that was needed uh, because we were tiring uh, coal uh, in a part of the state. So uh, we we started the permitting process a decade ago, um, we built the line, uh, a court uh, invalidated the permit. Uh, basically, the Corps of Engineers had done um, uh, an environmental analysis as opposed to a formal environmental impact statement. Uh, the D.C. Circuit said you got to do uh, to the Corps, you have to do an EIS. Uh, so we don't have a permit for the line. We've we've been allowed to operate it as the Corps has gone back and done the EIS. But we're now... Uh, a decade or more uh, later, thank goodness we're able to operate the line because we've yeah. had uh, weather times when it was critical for us to be able to serve load. But that's an example of where this process is taking an awfully long time. Um, the, the way I think about it is the permitting process needs to be thorough. Um, it needs to be demanding. It needs to have a beginning and it needs to have an end. Uh, and uh, I mentioned I'm a lawyer. I think uh, lawyers are very good at um, focusing on process uh, and 
sometimes the government needs to focus on outcomes. Uh, we're trying to address uh, a climate uh, crisis, and we're going to need to move quickly in order to do that. So there were some uh, permitting reforms enacted by Congress last year. Uh, that's helpful. Uh, if there are others that can allow us to uh, develop a, a process that is thorough but efficient and achieves the outcomes that the government is seeking to achieve uh, in terms of uh, addressing climate and promoting the energy transition, uh, then uh, we would be all for it. Bob, you've given me almost an hour here, so this will be the last one, and I do appreciate all the time. Your view of the role of the modern utility in the energy transition, what should you be doing? What We've talked, talked a lot about what you are doing, but how does that evolve? Um, and, and what can the, the utility be best used to, to address as we address you know, the, the climate emergency that you just mentioned? Well, we've talked a lot about it. We're, we, are, uh, we execute public policy and we execute on behalf of customers. And our role um, is to make sure that we do that uh, in a way that advances our core mission of reliable, affordable, increasingly clean energy. Um, so that means uh, working with policymakers and working with customers uh, and working with other stakeholders uh, to make sure that uh, the projects and the approach that we are carrying out uh, achieves those objectives. And sometimes they're competing. Uh, and we need to make sure that we're doing our part uh, to help navigate uh, those sometimes competing objectives. But we've been doing that since the beginning, um, since our company uh, first started operating. And it's true of other utilities as well. So I don't necessarily see the role, our role as changing um, in, in that context, but our role does change as the policy objectives uh, and the objectives of our customers change. And what we are seeing, as we have discussed, uh, is that many policymakers and many customers are looking for a transition uh, to cleaner, smarter energy while maintaining affordability and reliability. We think we're well positioned to do that. We look forward to it. It's why we get up every morning uh, excited about what we can offer uh, the country and our customers. And uh, I, as I say to our team, no other organization you could work for has a mission more important than ours because nobody else can carry out their mission if we don't carry out ours. Thanks for the time today, Bob. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Bob Blue for joining the podcast. Factor This is a production of Renewable Energy World and Clarion Energy. Join us every Monday as we break down solar's biggest stories with industry leaders who actually move the needle. And please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on Factor This from Renewable Energy World.
Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.